Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. I really enjoy reading books about photography that tell me about things that I don't know how to do. And one thing I don't know how to do in photography, believe it or not, is to use a flash. This week, we have Sandra Cohn, author of Crafting the Natural Light Look, a book from Rocky Nook about using a single light to create, as the subtitle says, striking portraits with a strobe or flash. Sandra, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I have to say, this is just an amazing book, but there's just one thing wrong. There are no cats. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You know, note to self. I'll add that in the next edition. <laughs> I, expected, yeah. I, I expected at least one cat photo. I'm kidding. I make this joke often because I have two cats and I like to photograph them. Oh, I um, get it. I, I, I don't do portraits. Um, and there's a couple of reasons. The first is I don't have a studio, so I don't do it professionally, but... I'm not the kind of person who's going to go up and go up to someone on the street and say, excuse me, can I take your picture? Because there's all of the questions of, are you invading their space? And what if they say, okay, if you send me a copy, oh, well, then I got to write my email address down and et cetera. It just seems too complicated. Right. Um, I do the occasional portrait of friends and family, but I never really pay attention to the light. I just try and find a good place to shoot either natural light from a window or light outside in the shade. Um, you do this professionally with a studio, with real lights. Where do you begin? I mean, do you start with just a single flash? When I said earlier, I don't know how to use flash on my camera. Yeah. I'm not like, kidding. How do you get I, started? Well, I bought a flash a while ago and I just don't even know why I need to use it. So where do you begin with this sort of thing? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So that's the question I asked myself when I started. I'm a self-taught photographer, um, and I was somebody who really took a lot of pride in the calling myself a natural light photographer for years. I didn't use flash or strobe for probably the first 12 years of my career. And um, honestly, if I'm being 100% honest, it was mostly because I was kind of afraid of it. You know, like I knew how to work with natural light, kind of like what you were saying. It's like I could see my um, light coming through a window. I knew how to work with that. I knew it, it just was intuitive to me. And mm -hmm. strobes and flash didn't seem intuitive and it kind of freaked me out. And so I didn't do it for a long time. Um, but I live and work in Seattle which is a notoriously dark place. Um, and there were days, months of the year, whole sections of the year where I just didn't have the light I needed to do or to, to the needed to use to do my job, you know, in, in a way that my clients deserved. And so I just decided, okay, I need to get over myself and just learn how to do this. And it was actually something that I was really terrified of. So how I started was I remember vividly lying in bed one night, I don't know if you guys do this, but like running through like settings and how I can make this work and doing all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff in my head. And finally, I was just like, why are you making this so hard? You know how to work with a window and light is light. So why can't you just use your, your strobe and flash softbox the same way you use a window? And so honestly, that's where I started. I actually went out and I bought a light modifier that was like a big rectangle shape that looked just like a window. And I put my strobe in it and I started just pretending that the strobe and the modifier was a window and doing the same things that I 
do with a window, but with a strobe or a flash. Um, so that's when you say light with. modifier, is that like a diffuser? Yeah, like a softbox. Okay. Yeah. Right. So I used, I got a giant square softbox and I just pretended so in window. my brain. Fake window. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to set my people by the fake window, just like I would set them by the big window. And then I, you know, then I had to learn how to meter, right, for flash. So then I was like, okay, so now I'm going to meter for flash. That's really the only difference. Um, yeah, and I just kind of started from there. And it took a while of experimenting um, to get my light to look the way that I wanted it to. My whole goal was to create the window light that I get in my studio on a perfect day. Um, and so with practice and practice and practice and trial and error, I got to that point and started doing it regularly in my work and then realized like how, how just like life changing it was right to like be able to come to work and not have the stress of how am I going to make this work or to not, have to, you know, obsessively watch the weather forecast, you know, and just be able to like, regardless of what was going on outside, know that I could walk in and do my job and give my clients the kind of photos that they um, expected of me. Right. So that's when I was like, you know, I think I should start teaching this to other people because I'm sure it will help them too. And then it's just kind of an evolution. Why use a strobe rather than use a light that's on all the time? Because yeah. if the light's on all the time, you're seeing it live, you're metering for what you're seeing, you're you're adjusting the distance and everything for the people, for your subjects. Um, it would seem that that would be easier. Well, you know, and that's a great question and one I get all the time because I think photographers who are used to working with natural light feel more comfortable using with a using a continuous light because it feels the same. And in fact, there's a lot of things about it that are the same and so you run into the same problems. So first of all, you can only crank that light up so high. So you're going to you're going to bump up against the same limitations that you run into with natural light at some point, if you can't get it to go high enough for the way you work. Like I'm a film photographer. So I come on, you know, I come into my situations with a fixed ISO, for example. So I can't play around with that and bump around with that. Um, So there's limitations with that, with continuous light, continuous light, just like natural light won't freeze action. So one of the great things about strobe and flash is that if you have movement, um, it's going to freeze that and you're not going to get any kind of motion blur. And I work with little kids. So that's a good point, <laughs> like a good thing for me to have in my work. Like they're jumping Lots on the bed. They're, exactly. Um, and the other thing is, I don't know if you've ever sat in front of a continuous light, but they're really bright. And, yeah. and to get the light to the level that you need it to take a good photo, especially if you're using a film and you're stuck at a lower ISO, uh, you have to have it up really bright and it hurts your eyes. And again, I yeah. work with little kids and you put a continuous light on them and they're squinty and they're doing all the things. And a flash, it's a fraction of a second. That light just pops. Um, most of the kids I work with don't even notice it. Like it can go off. They don't blink. They don't start. Like, and it's, I find it's just easier, um, on them, on my clients, you know, it helps them be more comfortable. Um, and like I said, it freezes action. So that's why I don't use it. So I've done some portrait work, not a lot of, you know, very extensive portrait work, but I've got like a basic lighting setup. Uh, and, and I think the thing about just getting into portraiture or, or, or artificial lighting, it's just, like a, a 
it's another step up in terms of complexity and gear. And I think that's, I mean, it's certainly what kept me away from doing it for a long time because it's suddenly, okay, I need to have some extra light. Well, you, you go to Amazon and you go online and it's like, well, you know, all you need are like this three point light setup and a soft box and an LED and a ring light and all of this. And like, like it, it can get super complicated super quickly. And then you have to deal with, okay, well uh, now I need to deal with shutter sync speeds and like your brain explodes. And I think, yeah, Especially... And on digital, do you use the electronic shutter, the mechanical shutter? Yeah. That's another right. thing. Front yeah. curtain, rear curtain. Yeah, like, I know. Like, like, like the, there are so many things. And what I like about uh, what you've been writing about and, and speaking about is, you know, really, like, I'm sure you could probably set up super complicated Joe McNally style shoots where there are lights everywhere. But, you know, you're very much into the, you can do this with one light. Mm-hmm. and that i mean if anything else it's sort of comforting yeah because for somebody who wants to get into this they want to shoot pictures of their family maybe do some some side work or something it doesn't have to be super complicated it can be but heaven knows you don't need to go super complicated right away no and i actually think you really never need to go super complicated. I mean, (laughs) sure. If you're like a fashion photographer or something, there's a need for all of that. But, you know, most working photographers, um, if you're out there, you're working with clients, like it's, you have to be on your feet. Like you're thinking quick, you know, and most of us are, who are working with clients are used to, to using available light, working with one light. And so what I want to teach people is like, kind of like what I was saying about how I got started is it doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be complicated. If you can work with one light, you can work or one window, you can work with one light. It's the same rules. And honestly, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because there's like the three big reasons why my photographers stay away from using artificial light in their work is that it seems scary or hard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it seems complicated. It doesn't feel intuitive um, for all the reasons you, you just said. And I know that I ran into that when I was first learning, right? Like I'd get on YouTube or whatever and try to look up tutorials. And it was always these like giant setups with like 14 lights and, and, you know, assistants holding reflectors, and, you know, all the things. And it's like, that's not how I, I, I work. And that's not how I want to work. Right. And I think a lot of people run into that. And the third is that it's expensive. And it can get expensive when you are in a situation like you just described, where you don't know what to buy, you don't know what the equipment does, you don't know what you need and why. And so you end up just buying a bunch of stuff that you actually don't need and you're never going to use. And so I really do try to break that down in, in the book, you know, is to share like, listen, let's look at what you already know about window lights, the same thing. Let's talk about exactly what the equipment does. So you're only buying what you need. And once you're doing that, it really doesn't have to be that expensive. The first lighting setup I invested in was under $500, got me started. The other part of that is there's gear out there that is really expensive and there's gear that's really inexpensive. And I think photographers also run into the thing that we talked about uh, in an episode when we talked about tripods, like you can spend a very small amount of money to get some stuff, but it's probably not going to be good stuff. And then you're going to take it back or sell it or junk it or whatever. Uh, I mean, I, I bought 
some lights to do some video stuff. And, you know, they, they came with tripods. Yay. Oh, they're pieces of junk. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's just terrible. And you end up having to spend more money because you're like, well, I'm going to get the next one up and then I'm going to get the next one up when you should have bought just the decent one in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's intimidating. That's confusing. And yet I think there's a good reason for, you know, even being able to sort of buy something mid-range just to get started, like that, I think, is something that that people run into because it's so overwhelming. They're like, well, I don't know what to get, so I, you know. And so focusing, again, I'm basically here just to make your points. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I focusing, appreciate that. <laughs> focusing again on, on, on just getting one light and, and starting with that, like that's the the no stress, like get in and try it and then you can expand if you need to. Yeah. And it's really like, you know, my whole, the whole reason why I'm so passionate about teaching this and why I speak about it all over the place when I wrote the book is because at the end of the day, it's more, what it's going to do, especially if you're in business with your photography is it's going to expand your entire business. It's more than just light. Like you know, yes, it's going to help you bring like some better light consistency into your work. But once your work is more consistent, once you are not being uh, like when you can shoot or when you can take clients is not being determined for you by the weather or the time of year or the time of day, what it does is it opens you up and it allows you to take more clients. It allows you to be more consistent. Um, That consistency helps you build a stronger brand right? One of those like super trustworthy brands that your clients know, no matter when they come to you, their images are going to look like the images that you share. And then that kind of consistency in your brand is going to help you build your business. And then that's going to help you be more profitable. And like, it just like, it's this ripple effect. I, I like to tell people that, yeah, I teach lighting, but I don't teach lighting because I'm super into gear or like the technical side of photography, that's like actually the opposite of who I am. I'm really passionate about teaching lighting too, because of the effect that it's going to have on your brand and your business. And that's important to me to, you know, empower other photographers, not to not only be better at their craft, but to also be able to make a living doing what they love. And this Mm -hmm. one little skill absolutely helps with that. I notice in the book, I guess these are photos in your studio. And so you've got white walls and a white floor. So you're able to play with the light being more than just what comes from the strobe. Yeah. And, you know, people, a lot of people have been um, commenting now that they've gotten the book. So one of my favorite modifiers to use is a giant seven foot parabolic umbrella that is all white. And it's meant to be used as a shoot through, meaning that the light is coming through the modifier onto the subject. And I turn it around and use it actually as a parabolic where the light's hitting the back of the modifier and bouncing back out. But because it's white, of course, I'm getting a bunch of spill. And people always ask me about that. Like, you're you're using it wrong. I'm getting all these notes like, dear Sandra Cohn, thank you for the book. But by the way, you're using your modifier wrong. Um, and I realized that. But I mean, that's kind of the fun too of, you know, being a photographer. You get it. There there's no right and wrong, really right? You got to do things your own way. And I do that the way I use that modifier intentionally because of the space I'm working in. I'm working in a 
you know, studio, I have white walls everywhere. And so when I use the modifier that way, it allows me to still get the effects of a parabolic as far as what I'm seeing in my catch lights, but it's also bouncing that light all over my studio, which my whole goal is to create a window light look, right? That natural light look. And so that really helps me to do that. But fun fact, um, I was at WPPI in uh, February I was like, when was that? Seems like another year ago, but um, <laughs> it, was ago, yeah. it was it was just February, and um, shooting on the show floor was uh, shooting at the Westcott booth. Um, so show floor, no big white walls, you know, giant expansive space, and um, and I set that parabolic up that same way that I use it, and it works beautiful. It worked beautifully. It still got that really nice soft look. It looked very much like a Sandra Cohn portrait, even though I was there, you know on the show floor at WPPI. <laughs> so you can use it that way. So you shoot film mostly. Um, I, I see pictures of Hasselblads in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I know why a lot of people shoot film, but what are you looking for in film as opposed to digital? I mean, I shoot film primarily because I'm lazy. I mean, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't know. I developing just, and, developing no. and enlarging, that's a lot of work. Uh, well, I don't do that part. So here's the story. Like, I don't want to sit in front of my computer for hours in post-production. I absolutely hate it. And um, when I, I made the switch to digital back in the day when everybody's like, you have to switch to digital. Um, and I did that and I hated it. It just was, it, we just don't go well together. We don't. And what I like about film is I can just shoot it in camera the way the Lord intended. And then I'm done and I know it's going to be perfect. And I send it to my lab and they process it and they scan it for me. So I still get a digital file back and that I can give to my clients. But what's awesome is that, you know, those digital files come in from my scans and they're perfect, right? I, you know, every once in a while I'll go in and I'll edit like a little baby zit out or whatever. But for the most part, I don't really edit my photos. I'll straighten them. Well, you see it in the book. I show you how I edit my photos at the end of um, the last chapter, um, there's really not a lot to it. And so what that means is that my time in post-production takes me five to 10 minutes versus hours that it used to. So that's why I sh- mostly why I shoot film. It's just easier. But in my you opinion. found someone you trust to do mm-hmm. the post-production. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously you do this professionally for a lot of people listening who aren't professionals. Um, they won't have that option. Um, they, well, yes, but okay, you send it out to one lab and maybe it's not exactly what you want. And, you know, it would take a while to find the right person to do that, wouldn't it? Well, I will say that um, as a film photographer, your lab is your creative partner yeah. because there's so much, you know, processing a negative is an important job because if the negative's messed up or the negative's lost, then you're done. Like that's, that's your raw file essentially. Um, and there are, we are lucky. There are still a handful of really good film labs out there. So I use Richard photo lab and they are, as far as I'm concerned, the gold standard of film labs. And, um, you can, you know, send your film in there, even as an amateur or a newbie photographer and give them, you know, a little bit of guidance. Like, you know, I want more dark contrast. Yeah. I want more light and airy and they will, you know, scan, scan your images and they do a fantastic job. So I recommend them to everybody, you know, like my kids take the, those little Kodak disposable cameras, you know, and shoot those. And I send those off to Richard Photolab because 
I know they're going to do a good job with them and with the negatives. So which film stocks do you like? Well, <clears throat> my favorite, the one that I use um, almost exclusively is Portra 800. Everybody's like, why are you using an 800 speed film? Um, when you're working in studio with lights. Well, because I love the color profile. So the fun thing about working with film is that each of, there's no, there's no universal standard for, for color film, for example. So each stock is a little bit different. It has its own color profile. It has its own grain texture. And uh, when I first went back to film, I did, I spent a lot of time experimenting and trying out the different film stocks to see which one I liked, which fit, you know, fit my style, what I wanted. And I just love Portra 800. I love the the colors I get. I love the tones and I love the, the grain structure. For black and white, my favorite is the Ilford Delta 3200. So in the book, all, most all of the black and white images that are in there were shot with that Ilford um, and again, it's, it's like, people are like, why are you using an ISO 3200 feed film or yeah. ASA, whatever you, you want to Because you want depth of field? Uh, no, because I want the grain. <laughs> I like the so grain what do you, texture. So, so do you, do you, you use the 3200 ISO and then you pull it in processing? Nope. I just, um. You shoot at 3200. Yeah. And okay. I just meter for my highlights or I meter for my midtones with my studio lights and, um, and send it off. Send it off to Richard Photolab. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I, I, find, I find it weird with all that light to be using something with, with such I, a high I ISO. People do. I mean, I, I, I understand about grain um, in, in different film stocks. I mean, I, I when I started shooting back in the 80s, I used Tri-X Pan, um, which has that lovely, that yeah. almost oil paint-like grain yeah. when, when you look close. Um, but what Tri-X at 400, I, I maybe pushed it to 1600 a couple of times to so try to see what you get. Um, but 3200 seems like a lot. I'm trying to, I, I can't imagine. Uh, we, we were just talking about getting an, uh, someone to talk about ISO on the show because I recently learned that in digital cameras, ISO doesn't exist. It's just the gain that's applied to the, um, sensor sensor. Thank you. Mm, the, I was going to say processor. And so the concept of ISO is something that is so artificial and digital, yet it's essential in film. It's it's you can't change it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in digital, the ISO on one camera brand will be different from another one. Yeah, it's it's interesting, um, and I actually I talk about this in the book. I did get a little bit nerdy with my my film self in the book, and I was really grateful to Rocky Note for for giving me that leeway to do that. But I do think it's an interesting point. I know it's something that people ask about my my style all the time. Like, why are you doing this? Um, but especially with film, the ISO number. You know, people always think, well, ISO really you just choose your ISO number based on the amount of light you have, right? But um, with film, there's also an artistic element to it where you choose your ISO for your look you're going for, for the grain texture, for, for that piece of the, the, you know, the creative piece of your work. And that's definitely what I do. So when I'm choosing my film stocks, because I'm using light, I could work with anything I could, I could do, you know, pan F 50, you know, um, but I choose my stocks based on the color profile and the grain texture and go from there. And I personally love a big chunky grain as, as you know, and you can see it in my images in the book, but I think it's beautiful. 
But you're shooting a Hasselblad, which is already large. So yeah. that means that in your prints, if let's say you do an 8x10, the grain isn't going to come out as much as it would as if it was 35 millimeter film that was blown up. So yeah. you're getting the texture, but the texture itself isn't overpowering because of the way it's printed. Yeah, the negative side, yeah. exactly. So yeah, I shoot a Hasselblad and a Roloflex in the studio. A Roloflex? I saw a photo. Yeah. I thought it was just maybe you had an old yeah. one laying around. You actually use that. I, oh, I use it all I the time. I find that fascinating yeah. to, to look down in the camera like that. Um, I, remember I know, when, it's fun I remember too. when I played around with it. The, the, back in the 80s, a friend's father had one or something. And you look down, it's like, wait, everything's upside down. How do you do this? <laughs> And backwards. Yeah. I know. It's definitely a different way of seeing. And you know what's fun about the Roloflex, though, too, is that I can get it on, you know, I put it on a tripod. Like, let's say I'm working with a family and I had the family set up. And once it's on the tripod and focus, I don't have to look through it yeah. to take the photo or anything, right? So you can just click it, which is like such a fun, different way of taking a photo, especially when you're interacting with kids, right? So first of all, a little kid has never seen anything like a Roloflex before. Yeah. So you, you sit them in front of that camera and they're staring right at it because they're trying to figure out what it is. <laughs> so, and then I get to talk to them and hang out. So some of my favorite portraits that I've, I've made of particularly little kids I've taken with the Roloflex um, just because it's a little different, you know, it's, it's a little something they haven't encountered. And so you get a different kind of relationship and reaction with it. Can you change lenses on a camera like that? What are the options? Yeah. Well, and so it comes obviously with a fixed lens, but I have these, um, these little filters that, are, that I can screw on that, that you turn it into more of like a zoom right. kind of right. lens so I can get closer. Yeah like a converter, a teleconverter. One more thing that I wanted to touch on with uh, regarding complexity that, that I think you guys just hit right now was that aspect of working with people because having a nice simple setup that you already intuitively know how to use, again, sort of getting away from the many, many, many lights means that you are get to focus more on the people. Yeah. And that's the other uh, daunting part about shooting portraits is, oh, wait, uh, this isn't like shooting a landscape where everything is just there. Yeah. Like you have to interact, like you have to pose or, you know, at least get some reactions out of people. And again, like like that seems like a really difficult part. But it sounds to me like having one light, having, you know, your, your Roloflex set up, you can just like all the technical stuff goes by the wayside yep. because it's already taken care of. And then you can deal with the people. Yes. Jeff, you get me. You get me. <laughs> that's what I love teaching people too. It's like, that's the beauty of it is it doesn't have to be hard. And then yeah. once it's done, once it's set up, then you just set it and forget it. And it gives you the freedom to not worry about what's happening with your light, not worry about what's going on with the weather and not worry about all that. And just put your focus where it should be if you're a portrait photographer, which is on the people in front of you. Um, and one of the things I thought was fun we did in the book is I, I share a photo session of an entire family and I talk about using the one light. So how you use the one light when you're just photographing the baby and then how you adjust it slightly when you're doing the kids together and then how you adjust it slightly when you get the whole family group in and just showing really how easy that is. And it takes me three seconds to, you know, move, adjust the light, you know, so 
that I can light one person to I can light five people or four people or whatever. Um, but it's that ease of it that I really wanted to show because again, then you focus on what your job is. And as a portrait photographer, your job is getting the best out of the people who are sitting in front of your camera, right. not fussing with your light. I don't know if you've noticed, but in the, in the book, I also have an entire chapter on just metering. And I know that in this digital age, metering isn't something that people tend to teach. You know, a lot of people will say, you know, if you're using a digital camera and you're using lights, just, you know, adjust your light by looking at the back of your camera until it's, until it's right. And I've, you know, I've seen a lot of people teach it that way. And I'm a big believer in like efficiency. Again, I work with kids and kids have about 20 minutes that they're going to give you before they're like, I am out of here and I'm done. And so Mm -hmm. for me, if I'm having to sit there and look at the back of my camera and adjust my light that whole time, that that's a wasted time. Like that's the importance of metering. Again, it's that ease. It's like, just get it right. Set it. It's going to take you literally one test to do that. And then you just go and focus on your people. And that's how as a portrait photographer, you're going to get the best work. Sandra Cohn, thank you very much for joining us. The book is Crafting the Natural Light Look from Rocky Nook. Link in the show notes. And if you subscribe to our newsletter, which you'll find information about in the show notes, we're giving away, I think, two copies of the book. So anyone who is a subscriber already or any new subscribers will be entered into the drawing, which is basically um, Jeff asking Siri for a random number on his iPhone and then picking from the list. Sandra, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Okay, it's time for our snapshots. Jeff, what have you got? This week, I'm going to bring up something that I've not personally used, which kind of sounds weird, but it's been highly recommended to me. Uh, If you recall in previous discussions, uh, in May, I was supposed to go to Italy and uh, do a photo workshop. And of course, coronavirus canceled all of that. One of the things that I was going to do to prepare for my trip was to buy new filters, uh, ND filters specifically, because the ones that I have, I have like a set of Tiffin filters and they're fine. They're not high quality. They're a little scratched. And so I was going to do a lot of landscape photography. And one of the things that I was looking into and that was recommended by a friend of mine uh, is Moment So the company Moment, which I had just associated with making lenses for iPhones, I think that's how they started or that's maybe what they've mostly been doing. Well, they also have uh, a whole set of ND filters that um, are highly rated. They do a great job of, you know, filtering out light. And uh, so they're basically... ND filters that uh, are are variable, and they just cut light and give you more control over uh, reflections, and especially if you want to do something like uh, make nice silky waterfall shots, uh, you can slow your shutter way down without having it to be really, really dark outside. So the company is Moment, and Moment Variable ND Filters, of course, there'll be a link in the show notes. They look pretty expensive, $130 for a filter or more, depending on the size. I think that's the range for something that's definitely professional. Um, the, the the set that I have, I think, was like $75, and it com- came with six. But again, they're not really that great. They they were fine. Yeah. And so these were the ones that, that if you know you're going to be going out and, and being really serious about it, uh, 
I wanted to step up. Now, of course, I don't have them now because I don't have a need to go out, but they're definitely on my list. And variable neutral density filter? I didn't know that existed. Yeah. Same here. Okay. Well, <laughs> so I look forward to hearing about it if about you've it. gotten it and seeing some examples of what you've shot. I assume it works like a circular polarizing filter where as you turn it, it, it affects the light differently. I believe that's the case, yeah. Okay. And Kirk, what do you have this week? Well, we were discussing before we started recording this. It's not technically a snapshot because it's not new. Um, a few months back, I bought the Fuji 16 to 80 millimeter uh, zoom lens. Um, I've long been a prime lens user. And what I like about the zoom lens is it's got uh, optical image stabilization. I have a bit of a tremor, so it allows me to shoot slower. It's big and heavy, um, but I've gotten used to it. It's kind of comfortable. And about two weeks ago, I decided, okay, I'm going to put this lens down. I'm just going to get a single lens. And the first thing I started with was the Fuji 27 millimeter pancake, which I know you like this lens very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually find it too light on my camera, the X-T3. It, it feels unbalanced. So I got out my 35 millimeter F2 lens. 35 millimeter is 50 millimeter equivalent. Um, I've always liked the 50 millimeter focal length. It's what I see. Um, and I've been walking around the village in the garden since I can't go too far these days. And I've been using this exclusively for the past couple of weeks. And it's kind of, I guess I tend to oscillate zoom for a while, prime for a while, but when you come back to just using a prime, it's smaller and lighter. Um, there's more control I feel that I can have um, over since it's a smaller lens over aperture and, and focus. So I use the thing where you press and hold the shutter. And if you want to change your focus, you turn the focus wheel. I forget what that's called. Um, manual focus override or something. I think so. Yeah. Um, it, and and with a smaller yeah. lens like that, I feel more like I'm in control of the camera in a way that I'm not with a larger lens. So not technically a snapshot, but just if if you if you've got a zoom and a prime, get your prime out, put the zoom away. You probably can't go far these days, but try it out because the the camera feels less like a tool and more like an extension of my eyes when I do this. That makes a lot of sense. Also, uh, the f two lens. Uh, I believe we've talked about this in the past. This is definitely one that I have on my list of you know the next lenses to get. Uh, you know, the f two lens is still uh, very fast. It's lets in a lot of light, but it's not nearly as expensive as even an F1.8 or certainly an F1.4. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an accessible. It's cheaper, lens. it's smaller, it's lighter. Um, I, I, I have absolutely no desire to get one stop more in a lens to get a b- background blur um, for something that's going to be as heavy as the zoom lens almost. Um, some, of these, um, some of these faster Fuji lenses are actually quite large and quite heavy. And yeah. I, I like the fact that this is small and compact and it doesn't bang around when I've got it over my shoulder. Um, and I think I've talked in the past how much I loved the Fuji X100F, but the problem is I don't like the 23 millimeter focal length, which is a 35 millimeter in 35 mm-hmm. millimeter equivalent. And if they made right. a, an X100 with a 35 millimeter lens, so the 50 millimeter equivalent, I would buy one in a snapshot. Be- I would buy one in a snapshot. No, I would buy one in a heartbeat um, because that for me would be the perfect camera. Uh, since the lens is built into the camera, it come, it sticks out a lot less than it does when you attach the lens. Um, mm-hmm. And that would that's the focal length that I love. Good. good. Okay. Until next time. I look forward time. to your shots. Okay. Until next time. 
Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast app.